Welcome into Tailgate. Austin Gill here with Mike Renner in sunny Cincinnati. Ripping it up. Wednesday edition of the podcast. Recording this at 2.50 Eastern Time, Wednesday, April 13th. We did not buzz for opening day, but it was raging. It was. It was good. It looked like a good time, but... Draft comes first, you know. It's that time of year. It's why I missed the Masters and Tiger. It's why I missed opening day. Sometimes you got to make decisions that are for the company. You're a company man at company heart. It's really what it is. You're a company man at heart. Uh, we, so our apartment is right on the banks, which is a bar strip in Cincinnati. Just between looking, the football and the baseball stadium. Between Yeah, it's the, a strip of bars between the football and the baseball stadium. And it was buzzing, dude. The weather was good. The Reds gear was out. Now we just get, which made me excited for when the draft's over, you know? Yeah. And when you get to decompress. And I will be uncompressed at the banks at some point. First thing on Tailgate here, going to announce Hutch is finally live. Make sure you go rate and review and subscribe to Hutch wherever you get your podcast. You can also find it on YouTube. I'm bringing my St. Jude's love to Hutch. Every thousand views it gets on YouTube, I'm donating 10, donating 10 bucks to St. Jude's. We're going to bring more children support, more. Um, St. Jude support uh, over to the Hutch Project. Make sure you go check it out, rate, review, and subscribe. Tell all your friends, specifically Michigan friends. The other thing on this call here, this catch and early buzz. I don't have any Michigan friends. Derek Carr yeah. extended three years, $120 million. Who called it? Do you Have you seen the contract details? Three years, 121. What was the actual details of your yearly? Only money guaranteed is 2022. Okay. It's $26 million. Everything else isn't out. So it's pretty much not a contract at all. It's a, he gets a full so it's great for them. It's, it's, the exact, it's the exact thing I said. See if he plays well this year. And if he That's does. That's not the exact thing you said. You said don't even extend him at all. This is not an extension. It, is, it literally is though. It said 2023 is. No, the, the out is after this season. If he doesn't no. play, if they, they, they all he's guaranteed is this season. Okay, it's essentially a one-year prove-it deal, is what it is. He gets a four million dollar raise this year, and then I mean, this is all reported from Pro Football Talk. Okay, um, the twenty twenty-three contract is can be dropped. The 2023, 2024 version of this can be dropped. It's no longer, you know, it's not a. Uh, it's kind of like funny money after it, right? And I think if you went into this and said, here's a three-year contract extension with guarantees into the 2022, 2023, and 2024 season, it's like the Kirk Cousins deal, right? Where you're like pot committed to Derek Carr over the next three years. This deal, at least from what we've heard from Pro Football Talk, is essentially saying, hey, Derek, your money in 2022 is guaranteed and it's $4 million more than what you would have made in your last year of your contract. But after that, it's up to us whether or not you know, we keep you or lose you, right? Mm -hmm. And I think from th that's exactly what they need to do. Like they didn't have to make him just play on this last year's contract and lose some of that leverage. But now, if he plays really well, he just plays on the contract he just signed. Mm -hmm. If he doesn't play well, you're and and live up to the expectation with Devontae Adams, you're able to move on from him, risk free. I think it's smart, smart business by the Las Vegas Raiders. When I first saw the details, I was like, oh my gosh. I thought maybe it was going to be $80 million guaranteed or something, and they're pot committed to Derek Carr and this Devontae Adams project working over the next three years in a division where they're currently ranked fourth in terms of odds to win it. Instead, it's, hey, Derek, with Devontae Adams, you throw four, you know, um, 50 touchdowns, you know, you're a top five quarterback in the NFL next year with Devontae Adams, you're going to be playing on a contract that pays you at $40 million per. If you don't, we're going to end this position now to, to move on from you. I, yeah. think it's a, I think it's a perfect contract for the situation that they're in. Yeah, and it gave him more. So, yeah, it's given him more money this year, which we said his number this year was very favorable. Now it's going to be boosted a little bit, but kind of bought more this year to give them the option of keeping him in the future. 
I think it's I think it's smart. I think when I, like I said, when I first saw this contract come out, I thought it was going to be a Kirk Cousins mm-hmm. situation. And they're, and they're the Minnesota Vikings of the AFC. They have a really good receiver and a top 12 quarterback at best, and they're going to try and make it work yeah. in a division where there's objectively a better team in the Green Bay Packers. Instead, it's like, hey, if the Derek Carr thing works out, we're going to commit to him, paying him a top five quarterback in the NFL. And if it doesn't, and the Devontae Adams marriage isn't as successful as they're you know, all the expectations are, you're in a prime position to move on from Derek Carr and, and make some other decisions. The thing is, it's not really, well, the position is interesting though, because it's not move on in terms of like trade is the only problem here. They kind of lost their trade leverage if he stinks this year. Uh, obviously, if he stinks this year, they weren't going to have a ton of trade leverage either. Yeah. But like, if he stinks this year, they're cutting him outright. Is no, the but no, but I think, what I think though is, if he stinks to get, to this get, year. I mean, to get out from the contract, they have to cut him. Is the thing? Oh, it's really? Not is just, that? I mean, it's forty million dollars. Then who's going to take them if they don't want? If the Raiders aren't going to take them at forty million dollars, who else is? I mean, why? I always get in these conversations yeah. and why they even like why are you even signing it, right? If you if you have a quarterback that after one year it could get to a point where who could take him if he doesn't play well? <laughs> That's insane. Like, why are you even ever paying these guys? But like again, like I, I get what you're saying there. Right? I think it's what's going to happen. If I had to bet the the lar- largest range of outcomes, he plays middle of the pack and they win nine games. They barely miss the playoffs or or a first round exit. And then they're in this purgatory decision of, do we keep Derek Carr, like the Niners keeping Jimmy G, like mm-hmm. the Vikings keeping Kirk Cousins, or do we move on from him? And I think it'll be in the same situation in terms of a trade leverage standpoint. It's like, would you trade Kirk Cousins? What are you gonna give up for Kirk Cousins? What are you gonna give up for Derek Carr? Yeah. And what are you gonna give up for Jimmy G? They're gonna be in that situation. Now, is there a range of outcomes, right, where the Devontae Adams pairing, he throws for 45 touchdowns next year and they have a lot of success? Absolutely. Do I think it's minuscule? Yes, especially in the division that they play in. So, and the offensive line and all that stuff. So I think it's a really good decision by the Raiders. Way smarter than giving him like $90 million guaranteed on that contract. And I think they're going to benefit from it. And I think if Derek Carr plays well, they're in a great position. If he doesn't play up to expectation, they're in a great position to move on from him and, and so forth. Next thing on the catch and only buzz here. This has kind of been re-reported a little bit and resurfaced. But Tom Brady, if this is all true, it's some of the most insane stuff I've ever seen. Yeah. He apparently like was planning. Okay, this is all from the Boston Globe, so I'm just going to read like verbatim here. Brady was like planning to fake retire or something, and then Flores filed the lawsuit against the Dolphins, and that kind of made things more difficult to have any of those plans, right? And then I don't know. I, I guess explain it. To, I, I don't really. Understand. I'll explain it. Okay, I can explain it. So he had he has connections with um, what's his face, the Dolphins owner. Uh, What's his first name? Ross, Stephen Ross, yeah. Stephen Ross, who's don't, who's uh, named the business school in Michigan's named after him. He has the Michigan connections there with Stephen Ross, so it was very well connected with him. Had this plan set up for him to re- retire, become a part of the Dolphins' ownership, be a a minority owner in a role there that is at like more of a kind of advisory role in the front office and then sneak his way into actually playing on the football field and trying to force a trade via that route to the Miami Dolphins from the Tampa Bay Buccaneers middle of the way through the offseason. That fell through after the Brian Flores lawsuit got filed um, because then his sort of plan of doing that, they thought the optics of hiring a white head coach, and Sean Payton was also involved in this in that he had retired as well to then become the head coach of the Miami Dolphins. The optics of just hiring Brady in a leadership role and a white head coach and a white front office person would have been bad and optics-wise for the NFL. So they had to scrap that. Brady 
never planned on actually retiring and walking away from the game of football entirely. So goes back to Tampa Bay and basically says, it's for me to play, Bruce Arians has to go to the Glazers there, the family that owns Tampa Bay Buccaneers at the game that everyone, that everyone saw him at with uh, Ronaldo at Manchester United, I believe, whatever. So says that to them. They have a mea culpa with the understanding that Bruce Arians is going to be out. Uh, Todd Bowles is going to be in and basically just leave him, Brady, and Byron Leftwich to their lonesome on the offensive side of the ball to install game plans because Brady had a problem with Arians coming in later in the week and changing things that they had decided upon already. So that was that, which is fucking insane. That's what insane. A play. I mean, like, I, I don't blame Brady one bit. He wants to get back at the, temp, or at the New England Patriots still. And he still wants to get in that division and get after Bill Belichick. I, I don't blame him one bit. And when you have the kind of leverage Brady does as the greatest quarterback in terms of wins prolific on the football field, he can kind of write his own path. And that's what he tried to do. Flew in the face, all fell apart. But man, that would have been a wild scene if he actually got to pull it off. And this is all. I don't know how the Boston Globe is getting this. That's an insane story. That is like weird levels of collusion. That's like conspiracy theory stuff. To have that all reported is insane. I'm not saying it's not true, but it's yeah. that is nuts in terms of insider information. If Brady is just so petty, I, that's just I'm, oh man. That I mean it explains a lot of like. It honestly makes me like Brady even more. That's like a all time. Just middle finger, and I can't help but respect it. You have to respect it. You have to respect it when you have that much like pull too. I mean, he has so much pull where he could mm -hmm. do some crazy stuff like that, which yeah. is which is insane. Last piece here. You explain this one too, because since you're a former <laughs> accountant, Commanders accounting under fire right now mm. with some weird ticket sale stuff. You've seen Ozark. You you know how this works. <laughs> um, it's yeah. So I feel very. This this is I have an accounting degree and I'm a draft analyst. I am tailor-made to report on this story here they oh, wow. so the what they did is they had refunds that they intentionally so the twofold things one was them having refunds that were like uh kind of like deposits that fans made for seats and stuff like that that were supposed to get refunded but they intentionally didn't refund them to make people ask for their refunds if they wanted that money back people like come knocking on their door for the money so that was gray area legality there and then this one is nothing short of actual money laundering, was they pushed ticket revenue into the accounting of the ticket revenue that they were getting that gets shared across the NFL, that gets reported to the NFL from into other events that were occurring at FedEx Field, so like concerts and whatever else goes on at you know, a stadium, that they would then put that ticket revenue onto those events, so then that's not shared to the NFL. That is just... Washington Commanders owned revenue that just goes into their pockets that they didn't have to then report, which is illegal. And after all the shit Daniel Snyder's done as the owner of the Washington Commanders, it never has actually affected the pocketbooks of others. This one did. And this could be the straw that breaks the camel's back proverbially here for the Washington Commanders because that's not, you, you, don't, you don't fuck with someone else's pocketbooks. That's when they come at you. That's when NFL owners are going to turn on you. And I think this is the this is the end. I do think he's going to have to sell a team after this. The NFL is going to make him. Yeah, I, I think you multiple people had that same take about Snyder, right? He's done a lot of things that people are like, wow, how does this guy still have a job? But it has not affected the money yeah. of anyone, uh, especially It's an in the internalized league. problem. Yeah. In now now it's like, bro. Now it's a league-wide problem. And uh, yeah, this might be it. Writing might be on the wall for the commander's era. And uh, I love the, yeah, it's it's... 
What an insane catch nearly buzzed. <laughs> what, what an era it was for Daniel Snyder, too. Wow. A history of greatness. Stop. Really stop. Derek Howard contract, which is pretty much just all fluffy money, which is exactly what the Raiders should have done. Got Tom Brady looking to diabolically ruin Bill Belichick. Commanders are the one thing I will say, though. Accounts. <laughs> I will say, going back to the Derek Howard contract, no one ever gets under these. No one ever stops, though. No one ever says, you know, with the contracts that have been set up like this in the past. No one ever has the nuts to say, that's it. We're going to not, we're going to separate from this guy. We're yeah. going to bite them, take our you medicine. you know exactly what happens. And get you know exactly what happens. It's the range of outcomes I just said. Like, yeah. he's going to play solidly. Yeah. It's going to be good. He's going to be, it's going to be one of the best years of his career. He has yeah, the most yeah. talent Easily. he's ever had. Yeah. He might go, it's going to be just like the Jimmy G situation. He might hmm. go as far as Jimmy G. He might go to an AC championship. Don't say that. He probably won't, <laughs> but I'm saying... He's going to play well enough to I mean, he's still play consider well enough the, to contract, justify the contract, but not well enough to, yeah. to win. And so, that's the biggest issue. So as much as they do have an out, I, I will believe it when I see it, them actually But why do you bake in an out? Why do you bake in and out if you're not well, like, willing to exercise? I mean, if he stinks out loud, if he really goes in the tank. It's going to be hard to go in the tank with Devontae Adams, but True. I see that's what you're saying. Yeah. I think it's more likely that he plays really well, solidly, 8 to and 12 range. Yeah. Eight to twelve range, and that's just enough for them to continue to pay him, but not enough to move on from him. But I do think that means his trade value will be there, and that's why, like, you go back to like, hey, do you want to trade for Derek Carr on a forty million dollar contract? Maybe not. Matt Ryan's getting traded on stuff similar. I mean, maybe you can bake that in as well. So we'll see. We'll see what ultimately happens there. Should we get to the edge rankings here? We should, because it's, it's a deep class. It's going to take a while. It's going to take a while. Your tier one is one man and one man only. It's the man of the day. It's the man of the week. Aiden Hutchinson. Proud Your podcast. tier one wasn't even Aiden Hutchinson? Oh. My tier one is four people. I have. A, I, think it, I think it's really close. I think it's really close wow. between the top edge groups. Okay. I, I, I just see Aiden as a different edge prospect. I, I, I've come around to this, the other guys in this class, the other edges in this class, just being wartier prospects, like having bigger issues than an Aiden Hutchinson. I, I just don't think... It's like a to me he's he's in a similar realm of like assuredness to you know Chase Young, Nick Bosa, maybe not Miles Garrett. He's not that level athletically, but like the guys who are maybe not the elitist of elite athletes, but they're doing it already. Like they are mm-hmm. producing already. No one else is close to what he has done already on a, on a collegiate football field. So that's why he's in tier one by himself, and he's an elite athlete. Elite athlete. The thing gets lost. Elite athletic tools when projecting to the NFL. So that's why he's tier one. I think the, you know, I could talk about Aiden Hutchinson all day long, right? I think he You literally have 22 hours. You've I have. I have talked about Aiden Hutchinson, and he's the top of my list. He's in a tier with a lot of really talented edge players in this class. I still, you know, I, I still think that you can pull concerns, right, with all of these guys, right? I don't, like, he, the reason he's not in a tier by himself, because like you said, he's not Miles Garrett. You know, he, like Miles Garrett, I think, is a tier by himself type of edge player. But he's a really talented edge player. He's easily the best edge in this class. I think he's the best prospect at edge in this class, and it's because of just how sure you are that he's going to be what you're, you're you know how sure you are you're getting what you're getting right mm-hmm. you, you know exactly what you're getting character culture changer work ethic elite athlete big frame six foot seven 260 production in the big 10 production in big games you know 15 pressures against ohio state dominated in the big 10 championship against iowa and was specifically game planned against at georgia and you could say oh he wasn't in that game and oh let's bring up that game over and over you talk to daniel jeremiah dame brugler 
anyone about that game, they bring up just how how Georgia really tipped their cap to both Ajabo and Aiden Hutchinson, right? They tipped their cap and said, hey, we're going to make sure these guys don't beat us, run a lot of quick game, get the ball out quickly, and all that stuff. I do think Aiden Hutchinson's the best edge in this class. He's in a blended tier with a lot of other top edge prospects. I think it's a really good edge class. I think it's one of the better position groups in this draft. Um, but yeah, he's my top player as well. And you know, I could talk about him all day, but you should go listen to the Hutch podcast, wherever you find your podcast. Aiden Hutchinson, the top player in the draft and your tier one edge. He had the highest run defense grade in class, highest pass rushing grade in class. He's fucking good. He's fucking yeah. good. He's good. He's Very good player. Very good player. So. I think the you know the only concerns you know when you're comparing him to the Bosa's maybe you don't see the same turn the corner bend you know that you know, like the finishing that you see and obviously the arm length like it's like it's he, the Bosa's didn't have massively long arms though 33 inches for Nick I think Joey was like 33 and something they weren't that wasn't how they won mm-hmm. and I think that's kind of a similar thing you could say about Aiden he doesn't obviously he doesn't have long arms so that's not how he wins but. The way he uses them is how he wins. How he uses his hands, attacks half the man, has counter moves on his you know first moves. He's a high effort rusher, like a lot of sacks. People talk about you know everyone wants to highlight the sacks where you immediately beat the defender and, and, and blow up the quarterback. Those are awesome, rare high end plays, but also a lot of sacks and a lot of pressures come from working a second move, working a third move, and and, and working to the end of the whistle. And that's obviously never going to be an issue with Aiden Hutchinson. Your tier two inclu- includes the in the entirety of my tier one. Yes. I have. Aiden Hutchinson, then Kayvon Thibodeau, Trayvon Walker, George Karloftis. That's my tier one in that order. Hutchinson, Thibodeau, Walker, Karloftis. Your tier two is Thibodeau, Karloftis, Walker. So you're Walker, you're edge four. Yeah, I, I think Karloftis is the one guy that I, I, again, feel very good about projecting the NFL in terms of what he's done already on tape. Powerful bull rusher at a young age. He just turned 21 a couple weeks ago. So at 20 years old, he was you know, probably the best pure bull rusher in the country last year in terms of what he could do. And then it's like, okay, now what, how are those traits and what is, you know, he's the best bull rusher at collegiate level. How does he profile as a bull rusher to the NFL level? Well, he had a 38-inch vertical and a 10-1 broad jump at 266 pounds. It is a big dude who is explosive at that size. And yeah, he doesn't have the greatest 40, but he can get off the ball if you flip on the tape, that is all that really matters for me, for a bull rusher. I think he's going to be able to do that at a high level at the next in the NFL. So at that point, that's the guy I'm drafting highly. Like mm-hmm. it, it might not look as sexy as some of the other guys in the class, but I think he's just going to be very productive. And again, go back to the age thing. We're doing it at 20, and he was doing it as a true freshman too back in 2019. I'm going to buy into that guy. So obviously we've talked about KT, Kevin Thibodeau a ton. Don't need to bang a dead, beat a dead horse there anymore. You don't have to bang it either. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to bang any horses. Um, I've seen those videos. But Trayvon Walker, to me, I still struggle with the top five, top ten hype. I, you mentioned, you know, athletically is in the air with, and I'm just air, like Miles Garrett, Rashawn Gary, but like still a little better athlete. Like, like still His a little bit more. His best athletic comparison to me from a, frame measurables athleticism athletic testing standpoint is miles garrett like yeah. that the arm length the the size the the get off mm-hmm. the 10 yard split the three all everything he did athletically and his frame is what miles garrett yeah. is but every highlight you see of him every you know play that everyone's ooing and awing over of him are dropping in coverage chasing down a ball carrier how many are 
how many are his pass rushing reps that you're like, wow, there it is. There, there's that athleticism that showed up. I haven't seen a ton. He, he, he's even Rashawn Gary, who was a guy we knocked for that coming out. You know, the lack of production had high end reps. He had reps where there was as an interior rusher using his hands, had some bull rushes that were just throwing guys completely like you saw it just very infrequently. I'm not even sure we've seen it from Trayvon Walker. So where do you then value? It comes down to where you then value that. that freak athlete, it's a position where athletic tools matter. So he will get better and it will look better in the NFL in a role that's more catered to his strengths. But he's still got a very long way to go. And that's why I put him not in the number one overall pick territory mm -hmm. is, all, is all I'm saying. And again, I hate to like only mention the knocks on a guy, but it because we still view him as a mid first rounder. Mm -hmm. But when the conversation's all top three, top five, you almost have to focus on those because that's the word like that. That's how, that's how you get busts in the top three and top five is by focusing on who a guy could be. Your tier one, tier two in order, Aiden Hutchinson, the Michigan defensive end, Kayvon Thibodeau of Oregon, George Karlaftis of Purdue, and then Trayvon Walker. For me, it's all tier one, Hutchinson one, Thibodeau two, Trayvon Walker three, and then Karlaftis four. And I think in previous draft classes, I do think PFF would be lower on Walker, you know, for the production concerns and all that stuff. But there is an increasing understanding of what the NFL values you know, at certain positions and how much it values athleticism and elite high-end athleticism. That's why I do think you have to understand like the Hall of Fame potential, right? You understand like the Hall of Fame chance for a walker, right? Because he's just like a freak, like a legitimate Miles Garrett level athletic freak. If you think you can turn him into his maximum potential or you think you can get his maximum potential in the NFL, you're going to value him at number one overall, right? If Bulky thinks that Walker, you know, he, his coaching staff and his team can maximize Walker's potential, he's going to take him number one overall. And I think that's the question, right? I think it's less of an evaluation question as much as it is a development question. For Walker, the evaluation is easy. He is yeah. not super productive at Georgia, played in a role where he prioritized run defense and has raw, raw pass rush moves. Lack of polish there. Has not, you know, you're not like watching his highlight reel and super impressed with the moves he throws out and, and how he strings moves together. But what you do know is, athletically, he is... God tier. And if we can get a coach that can take Walker out of what is obviously a defense that prioritizes run defense and give him someone that can actually develop his pass rushing moves, he's going to do some insane things in the NFL. So I do think it's more of a developmental question with Walker. And that's what the team, that's what teams are going to have to ask. It's not as simple as like, I like Walker over Karloftis. I like Walker over Hutchinson. It's more like if your team and your coaching staff thinks specifically they can develop Walker into what he can be, you're going to take him really highly. Right now, I think he's minus 500 to be a top five pick. Like there are, there, the Lions are going to consider it. Houston Texans will consider him at three. I think it's that obvious. Jets, Giants, all that stuff. Um, do you want to hear some of my comparisons, my final comparisons for that Let's top Let's hear one? it. My number one comparison for Aiden Hutchinson is super Trey Hendrickson. And that's because you need to go back and look super. at super in that more athletic more productive, more productive in a bigger conference. And and I, I buy into the character and I buy into a lot of the stuff off the field. Like, I think he is, Trey, Trey Henderson coming out of FIU was an insane athlete with okay production. 
Aiden Hutchinson is as good, if not better, athlete than Trey Hendrickson with similar arm length and better production in a better conference. So I see super Trey Hendrickson is my comp for Aiden Hutchinson. Um, I, I, you know, the Bosa brothers, right? You have the longer arms. You, you know, some people are like Jared Allen, longer arms. You, you, you have to buy into arm length. Arm length, when you talk to Eric Eager, data scientist here at PFF, is so highly correlated to NFL success, specifically sack production. Number two, Kayvon Thibodeau. I like Robert Quinn. I've seen Miles Garrett. The comp for Thibodeau, I don't buy that for Thibodeau. I don't think, I think Hutchinson's a better athlete than Thibodeau. And, you know, he was, I don't think that's even that crazy to say. I think, I think Hutchinson is that, is that athletic. So with Robert, I think the Robert Quinn comparison is better for Thibodeau. Walker, super raw, inexperienced Miles Garrett. And inexperienced has obviously a super negative connotation, but Walker enters this draft with a third of the snaps played at pure edge alignments than Aiden Hutchinson. Mm-hmm. Like he has not played a lot of what you're going to ask him to play in the NFL, period. He does not have a lot of true pass sets on tape. You know, he doesn't qualify for a lot of the ranks that PFF tries to does, do with that specific data point. And then George Karloftis, I've said this for a long time, but I see him as a Justin Tuck type. His three cone was a lot better than I thought it was going to be. And Tuck's was a lot worse than what Karloftis put out. But I see similar issues with Karloftis' bend, right? I, I think he's more of a, a, a you know a north-south type of rusher, a power rusher. I think Tuck, that inside-outside versatility that he had, I think Karloftis will mirror it in the NFL. Karloftis, what was his three-cone? I don't think he had one. I think he did. He had, it was a sub-seven sub, sub three-cone. But it was marked as a short shuttle. But I don't think his short shuttle was like 6'8". I think they just like mismarked Oh, him. no, that one came out that it was misreported. He didn't have a three-cone. Oh, really? He didn't run a three-cone? Yeah. Oh, so maybe that comp even has more legs. Maybe he is not as bendy as what that three cone was reported. Uh, get to your tier two. That was my tier two. My tier three is top tier three is Jermaine Johnson, Florida State edge rusher. Um, Arnold Abichetti from Penn State. Nick Benito from Oklahoma. Drake Jackson, USC. Josh Pascal from Kentucky. Boye Mafe from Minnesota. Kingsley Inagbury from South Carolina. And then David Ajabo from Michigan. I, I believe only Drake Jackson from USC and David Ajabo are underclassmen in that regard. And then the fifth years there are Johnson, Pascal, Mafe, I believe. That's a thick tier. Thick tier. Jermaine Johnson, Ebiketti, Benito, Jackson, Pascal, Mafe, Anagbari, and then Ojabo. Ojabo obviously falling because of the injury. Where would Ojabo fit into this if he didn't get hurt? He would have been towards more towards the top of the tier. Probably, oh, it's tough. I'd probably put him ahead of probably right behind Nick Benito. So right ahead of Drake Jackson in this tier. But Achilles, it's just tough. So with him, you know, being, I wouldn't even call him a project, but like being a guy who's newish to football and missing an entire year of development. He's not going to play as a rookie. I wouldn't be floored if he plays at all. And so you're not even getting that introduction to NFL competition until a year and a half from now, where he's actually going, you know, one-on-one against NFL office linemen and like the difference that that presents. So your wash year one, year two is when he's finally starting to get, you know, more coaching, more actual playing on football field. So year two is almost a wash with who he is as a prospect. Now, if you think he's just paused his development for a year, he wasn't the guy you expected to contribute as a rookie anyways. So your projection is year three before you can even hope. And at that point, it's not like he was so freakish, like he's not in the Trayvon Walker chair of athletic where, you know, he's almost can't miss about when he finally, the light switch turns on. So that's a worrisome projection. Just if I'm using a top 50 to 60 pick on. My tier two after Hutchinson, Thibodeau, Walker, and Karloftis. Let's focus on these guys first because they're all in your tier three. Arnold Ebiketti, 
I think is the top of that tier. I like him ahead of Jermaine Johnson. Then I have Jermaine Johnson and then Boye Mafe. And the comps I have for them, Ebiketti, Ogbenai Okoronkwo, uh, Dante Fowler Jr. for Jermaine Johnson, then Boye Mafe, Jeremiah Atuachu. Those are more athletic comps and similar size comparisons. I think all those guys too, right? With Ebiketti, I like the most because I, I really like his trajectory. I think he has really good length. He's got good enough explosiveness. Ebiketti over Johnson, I think, is a take more people need to have. I I, I don't I, I see a lot of Jermaine Johnson. Do you know his prop to be inside the top ten? It's like minus two hundred. Yeah. Jermaine Johnson is being talked about as like a lock to go to the Falcons at eight. That I think is insane with how good Ebiketti is and even how good Boye Mafe is. Right. I see them in that similar tier. So I, I think Johnson has a high floor. I, I just don't see a bendy edge rusher. I think he's a bull rusher edge setter at the next level who isn't particularly like a lot of his bull rushes still died at the collegiate level. He wasn't consistently walking guys back, even to like a who was who have guys like you know, Marcus Davenport it was kind of that guy. It was like a bull rush only with like a similar sort of build and length. A a uh, who's the guy last year? I guess the the Saints really have a type. I was thinking of the Houston edge rusher last. Year. Peyton Turner is in a similar mold, but even those guys I thought were just a little more explosive and consistent in their bull rushes into contact. I don't see that with Johnson and very good with his hands, very developed. And that's why I say give him a high floor, but he didn't run a, uh, he didn't run a three count pre-draft and didn't do a short shell pre-draft. He opted out of those, which means they're not good. They weren't going to be good. You, you don't not, you don't do those if you thought you were going to put up a good time. So the, the stat that stands out to me with Johnson and a lot of these like tier three guys for me or tier two, whatever I'm at right now, is so I looked at the best power five single season pass rush win rates from pure outside the tackle alignments since 2017. So this is a single season mark on a predictive metric, you know, pass rush win rate that's more than pressures, that's more than sacks, looking mm-hmm. at pure outside the tackle alignments. So controlling for position. Number one, tie for number one over the last five years is Chase Young and Nick Bosa at 36%. Yeah. Number three, right behind them, is Josh Allen of Kentucky at 34%. And then tied for fourth is Aiden Hutchinson and George Karloftis at 33% this past season. The, those top five guys are all like insanely productive players with really good athleticism as well. Ebiketti ranks seventh on that list. Benito ranks tied for seventh with Ebiketti. Thibodeau, 15th. Boye Mafe, 36th. Ojabo, 41st. Jermaine Johnson ranks 111th on that list. Like People bring up you know different concerns with you know not having a short shuttle, not having a three-cone. He showed up at the Senior Bowl. He's an older prospect. And the, the production wasn't good enough. Like The production just simply was not good enough in his peak season at Florida State for me to feel all that confident in him as like a legitimate top 10 player now, um, especially when there's other really good edge players. Like I yeah. like Ebiketti. I like Mafe. I even like Kentucky's Pascal. Like I like the depth of this class so much more than taking or Jermaine Johnson inside the top 10, especially yeah. if Loftus is going to fall into the 20s. Like we're seeing Loftus fall to the Packers at 22. Yeah. Would you rather have Jermaine Johnson at eight or Loftus in the 20s? It's not even a question for me. And to go back to Johnson, like his production and like the senior bowl, was good. Like he was beating up on the tackles there. He was only facing the right tackles and was not facing, like it wasn't like a litmus test for really NFL. He was facing a lot of project guys. Like the competition level he was going against, he wasn't going up against Trevor Penning. He wasn't going up against Bernard Ryman. He wasn't going up against the rumored first round tackles at the senior bowl. He was going up against the other guys, which is a little different. And yeah, he looked the best, but he looked the best of a tier of n- none of these guys above him on this list was Aiden Hutchinson. KT, Karloftis, Walker, we're not there. Like, he looked the best of a group that's 
a we're talking about these guys as late first, early second round type of group. So it's also that's such why a small we're sample size, right? Yeah, I yeah, mean, that, <laughs> that's why we're pushing back a little bit on the oh wow, he's the best player at the Senior Bowl. Why isn't he you know top ten pick? There are, there are reasons for that. So that's that's how I feel about him. Still a very good player, like I said, very high floor, but twenty three years old with his profile, I'm just a little worried about. So. Talk more about Ebiketti, right? You have Ebiketti yeah. right behind Johnson, but you see him in that similar vein. I, I'm a huge Ebiketti guy. I like him yeah. as the fifth best player, fifth, fifth best edge player in this class. To me, that was kind of the decider, though. The Senior Bowl was the decider between Ebiketti and Johnson. Uh, Johnson outperforming him there, looking more comfortable there and confident there. I'll give the nod to him because I think they're similarly tooled players. Um, Ebiketti, very good pass rush plan, has a way to win the edge, and I think has almost an ideal body type in that he's shorter, but still long. He's mm -hmm. 6'2", and with 34-inch arms, which that profiles better to a pure bull rusher than a guy who's 6'4", 6'5", like Jermaine Johnson, with 34-inch arms, because that's a guy that can get underneath NFL offensive tackles. So I'm a fan of his. Like you said, if you have him ahead of Jermaine Johnson, I'm really not going to argue with you because uh, of their profiles going forward. The next tier for me, and it includes a lot of the guys that you have in like this really a lot thicker of a tier, is um, or did you want to go talk ahead? Go ahead. Before? No, you're gonna you're okay. gonna you're gonna bring up some of these guys yeah. that I want to talk uh, about. Uh, David Ajabo, Nick Benito. I still have Ajabo ahead of Benito, Jackson, okay. Pascal, and Thomas in this tier three, just because uh, you know obviously the injury risk is significant, but I think this is where I felt comfortable layering him in. So I have Ajabo. So this so this is my tier three. Ajabo of Michigan, and then I have Nick Benito, who I actually comp to Clay Matthews. And I think it's a Clay Matthews comp with less fire. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, because no one matched Clay Matthews' effort on the field. But I think it's a similar, like, he's a similar athletic build and similar production. Like, he is overly productive at Oklahoma. And I think could, you know, in that role, like, have a lot of success. Drake Jackson, I then have there. I, I went and rewatched him because I saw a lot of hype from other people in draft media. And I was like, oh, man, I, I really like Drake Jackson's tape. He wins on the outside. He can dip his shoulder really well. I, I came away more impressed. Then I have Josh Pascal, who... I like this comp a lot. I don't know if you remember this player. Lamar Houston, former okay. Raiders player, played for the Bears for a little bit. I think he was a second-round pick. I see some Lamar Houston. I see some Zadarius Smith to Josh Pascal's game, and I, I really like that. He is a zig to a zag over the rest of this class. Like, Pascal is like a bigger, beefier guy that wins with brute strength and power. And then Cameron Thomas, San Diego State legend. I actually had a comp to another Mountain West legend, Curtis Weaver. I see some some similar game in, in Cameron Thomas and, and Curtis Weaver. He's the last piece of this tier. So that's Ojabo, Benito, Jackson, Pascal of Kentucky, and then Cameron Thomas of San Diego State. Yeah, so the guy I want to highlight here is Josh Pascal. To me, he's unique in this class and what he brings to the table because he's 6'2", 270, which is a massive, like thick build. Weird, weird build. But he is explosive as all hell at that size. He had a 157-10 split. So a better 10 split than Jermaine Johnson at 62-270. Like his get off and a 37 and a half inch vertical with 10-3 broad jump. So I think it's a well-distributed 272, though. You know what I mean? Yeah. And even though he's, you know, 6'2, has almost a is a six foot seven inch wingspan. So he is put together and you see his tape at Kentucky. And he's one of those guys where if he would have just been able to rush off the edge and that's all he does, we might be talking about him in a vastly different light. And if he was healthy to go to the senior bowl, we might have been talking about him in a vastly different light because they have him playing three tech, four tech, five tech, like going head up on 
offensive tackles. They have him doing everything. Literally, he played every single alignment this past season at Kentucky for that defense. A lot of times, like he's 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 he filled a similar role, honestly, to a Trayvon Walker and what he did at Georgia, where it was kind of just Swiss Army knife, whatever we need run first, execute the scheme, and then if you can create some more after that, by all means, go ahead. And he produced a lot higher level than Trayvon Walker did. So I think Pascal is a guy that is almost getting underrated because you just didn't get to see what he could actually do in an edge roll that at the next level, if you just put him out there on the edge and let him go to work, we could be talking about a vastly different player early on in his NFL career. I think he, you know, so Pascal, the Kentucky edge defender, and Drake Jackson, the USC edge, I think are both getting a bit underrated in this class. And again, you talk about Jermaine Johnson at eight compared to you know, some of the depth in this class, Ajabo on day two, Benito later, mm-hmm. Jackson, Pascal. Yeah. I lean more into that, right? I think you know, that tier one I had before of yeah. Hutchinson, Thibodeau, Walker, Carlotis are guys that I'm not thinking about comparing, oh, Hutchinson on day one or Benito on day two. Like that's not, those aren't conversations that I'm having, but I am having conversations about Johnson at, in the top 10 versus you know, some of these guys that I think I c- could get in round two, round three. So I think it speaks to the depth of this edge group. Um, and I also wanted to highlight, so Pascal, I will also say fifth year guy, but he's only 22. So a full year younger than guys like Jermaine Johnson, Arnold Lebichetti in this class. Uh, the, the intriguing guys to me in this tier though also are Drake Jackson because he showed up at his pro day 273 pounds and still ran a 7093 cone. That was not the guy we saw on tape. He, he looked like he played at like 240 at USC. So I don't know what this guy can get to physically or, or where what he's been eating. But again, another guy who just literally just turned 21 this week, this, yesterday, in fact. We're recording this on Wednesday. He turned 21 on Tuesday. And to be able to put on weight like that and still test athletically as pro day, I'm, I'm intrigued because this biggest concern by far, not in close, play strength. He had no power moves on his tape whatsoever. Just a None. finesse player wholesale uh, at USC. But... So not a lot of 273-pound finesse edge rushers in the NFL. I'm curious <laughs> just to see what it looks like. So he could he could be a guy like a uh, – who's the uh, – Joe Tryon Shoyinka, mm-hmm. who that was him, remade his body entirely. He looks – now, he didn't look that – he didn't look as slight as Drake Jackson did. But comes to the NFL and looks like a different type of rusher once he gets there because of the work he put in in the weight room. So that could be Drake Jackson next year. And then Nick Benito is the one who – He's he's just so good, but he's just so undersized. I mean, two forty eight. He's a soaking wet two forty eight. He really doesn't have a power element to his game. But if you want a speed rusher, if you want a guy who can be a weapon on stunts, if you want a guy to do that in your defense, be a D Ford s kind of player, Benito could be that guy. I, I do think that when we had him on this show, right when Benito was, you know, some teams see him as an off ball linebacker. You know, some teams think he can. Well, oh, yeah, play, I mean, there's certain teams he will be. Mm-hmm. But you're not going to draft him. The one other player that you didn't mention who's like by himself in a tier four for me, but he's in that like big tier that you have is Kingsley Nagbury, who mm-hmm. I am still, I didn't want, I did not want to put in my tier five because tier five is kind of like a lot of like project Cheeks. players. I feel really good about a Nagbury. I, the comp I like for him too is another former Raider. I was in my Raiders bag. Mm. But do you remember Matt Shaughnessy? Okay. Yeah. Matt Shaughnessy is kind of the comp I see. Long arm dude, not not like really explosive. I think he had like sub 10 percentile like broad and all this stuff, but one with just tenacity, his hands, his length and all that stuff. I think Kingsley and Agbury is not going to be your burner off the edge that's winning early in the snap often, but I think he wins with his hands and he's got long ones. So <laughs> and long arms, yeah. right? I think that, that that's 
what led to really good production in the SEC. Like, he was a super productive player for South Carolina, um, but I don't think he's going to get drafted highly because he just doesn't have the juice. Yeah, 6'4 with a seven-foot wingspan is insanity. And that's like, that's how he wins, is that length advantage. But still raw. Like, I, I wanted to like him more. Like, if he was... If he really was consistently, because the pass rushing grade was great, a top five pass rushing grade in the country this last year, but he's just still not consistent with his hands. Like if he was more of a technician on tape, I'd buy in. Like I, I'd be into it because that, that, yeah. you could still win when when you're that when you have that pterodactyl build, you can still win off the edge. But he's just so loose with his moves, and that just that doesn't play at the end. Like you got to be on point with it. You know, like we talked to Clayus Campbell. What's the biggest thing to Clayus Campbell's career resurgence towards mm -hmm. the end of his career? Consistency. Being just getting to where he needs to be every single play. You do not see that with Kingsley and Eggbury. And even at senior bowl, the coaches are harping on him because he's not doing that every single play. So if I saw a little bit more attention to detail on his tape, I would go to bat for him more. But man, like this the senior bowl and, and the performance there and then the athletic testing is just a touch worrisome. There's more potential than that's being let on with Kingsley Nagbury because he has a one seven two ten yard yes, split that's exactly. like under twentieth percentile. Like yeah. there's not explosiveness there. But when you have, like you said, that combination of length and that combination of size, you can win if you are consistent. I think you 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 hit the nail on the head with that with that analysis of Nagbury. My tier five, last like kind of the meh tier. And I think it's a lot of the same guys that you have towards the back end. It's D'Angelo Malone, Western Kentucky, MyJ Sanders, Cincinnati, Tyreek Smith, Ohio State, and Sam Williams of Ole Miss. Guys that like. You see some things that you like, but no one I feel here here's how I kind of framed it. I don't know what I have to do to get them to be really productive. Like there's a thousand things I could probably the, the direction you could take with Sanders could be X or Y and he could be productive, right? With with Kingsley and Agbury, it's consistency. With a job it's gotta be healthy and I think needs to improve as a run defender. The game plans aren't obvious for these guys to be successful. DeAndre Malone, Sam Williams, Tyreek Smith, like I don't he needs a lot of shit. Like there's a <laughs> lot of stuff that needs to go better for these guys to be productive in yeah. the NFL, but they still have something. Which sounds rude, but I, <laughs> yeah. I, I that is kind of how I feel about these guys. Yeah, so Malone is like a sub 240 guy. He's a pure speed rusher. So one, is Sanders, depending trick. on the day you ask him. Yeah, one trick <laughs> pony. That's why I don't even have Sanders in this tier. But Malone's a one trick speed. Even he's a DPR, only third down type of guy. But I, I still like him in that role. He's been consistently productive. Um, the intriguing one this tier to me, two guys I'll highlight that are my tier four. You didn't even have this guy in your tier four, but Dominique Robinson, Miami of Ohio, right down the road here, right where. Master Gator Hunter Pencal goes to school. Uh, 6'5", 250, long arms, tested very well at his pro day. Let me get the numbers for you here. So 33 and a quarter inch arms, had a 1'6", split, a 4'7", 40. He only switched to defense two years ago. He started out at quarterback, then wide receiver for Miami of Ohio, and then defensive end. And he actually had, so 41 inch vertical was the number that he had. You stand next to this guy at the comp or at the senior bowl. He was the most diced up player on the football field. This guy did not have an ounce of fat on him at 253 pounds. He is yoked out of his mind and you see it athletically. I mean, you don't have a 41 inch vertical when you're carrying a bunch of bad weight on you. If you did, you're a freak of all time. But this guy explosive, still learning the position, but obviously so. He's, only been playing it for two years after playing wide receiver to where I'm just intrigued to where he could end up. Now he's going to be 24 in July. So he is old. He's spent a lot of time getting to that defense side of the ball there at Miami. But 
an impressive physical specimen where uh, you can buy into why he's admittedly wrong. Like I said, over 90 pass rushing grade at the senior bowl in the week of practices. So that, that's the guy that that tier, this tier is all top 100 players, honestly, on the PFF draft board. And the other one that really hasn't got talked about a lot, who's a unique, another guy who offers something that really, I'm not sure anyone else has in his draft class, is Alex Wright, 6'5", 271, a legitimate horse, UAB edge rusher. And he's only a true junior coming out of UAB. He declared early, which, again, to come out of UAB, declare early, you better have, he probably has some people who are high on him probably got a nice grade from the only committee. Only 21 years old. He's only 21 years old. True junior, 35 and a half inch arms. Six five two seventy one. He is a power So I have a question rusher. about that though. I have a question about that. Yeah. So at the combine, his arm length was measured at 34 inches. And then at his pro day, it was measured at 35 and a half. So his wingspan didn't change though. So yeah. the wingspan was 82 and 7 eighths. So 6'11 wingspan, wingspan. So like you can... Uh, it's long. He's long no matter what. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I just love that he got an inch. You know who could have used an inch and a half at his pro days? Freaking Aiden Hutchinson. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to, the, the disparity there, he's literally the same height, same weight, same, uh, slightly bigger hands, yeah. and then the same wingspan. But his pro day, he just threw an extra one and a half. Maybe it was a, they measured a different arm. I don't even know. Stretching the one out. I don't know. Whatever he did. Yeah. That needs to be talked about more because that uh, Alex Wright's out here about to get to 36 with his third pro day if he gets to it. But uh, for this edge class, I have about in those top four tiers for me, 13 guys that I do think will be at some points in their careers starters. Like I feel really confident in them as starters. It's in that tier five where I don't know, like the the Sanders, the Malone. I, it'll be it'll be development that gets them into that starter tier, right? Yeah. So that's the end of my. So those seventeen players I mentioned in my top four tiers are all going to be top hundred players in the PFF draft. Wow, that's depth. That is depth. That this class, the linebacker class, and like the offensive line class as a whole, interior offensive line class especially, deep man, deep deep classes. That's going to do it for our edge rankings. Now up to bat interviews with Montana State linebacker Troy Anderson, who was awesome, by the way. A really fun dude to talk to. He is, uh, dude, he played so many different sports in, in high school. He graduated with 80 people in Montana, which apparently is big for Montana high schools. Yeah, that's big in my high school. Really? Yeah. I, I Coming from California, like you just never hear that stuff. Mm-hmm. I've never heard of that stuff. So he's a fun one to talk to. And then honestly, one of my favorite coaches, and I've talked to, I think, over 30 college coaches now on this podcast, Jeff Halfley. Jeff Halfley is a dude at Boston College. He was a lot of fun to talk to as well about that offense he has coming up. He thinks he has a first-round guard replacing Zion Johnson in that offense. Let's get to those interviews with Troy Anderson and Jeff Halfley. Welcome into Tailgate. Now joining the show is Montana State linebacker Troy Anderson. We were talking a little bit before we started recording. I, I really do feel that you're one of the more underrated stories in this draft class. Can we please start with your high school career? You played receiver, you played defense, you played, you ran track, you, I think, led to some state titles in basketball. Talk about your high school experience, man. It sounds like you were the man on campus, one of the freakier players there. Yeah, I mean, it's small town Montana, so you have to play everything. There's not enough guys to only play one sport. So, yeah, I mean, I played basketball, ran track, and, yeah, I mean, played football. Kind of kind of did it all. And, and so it, how many player, you know, players, how many people did you graduate with in high school? How many play, you know, people there total at your high school, and how many players were on the football team? So we had, we had 300 in my high school. I think I graduated with 80. 
Um, wow. So for Montana, it's actually, believe it or not, not that small. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think we had 30 kids or something out for football, maybe. That's so not insane. I, I graduated, so I'm from, I'm from California. I graduated with 900 people, and our high school had like 3,100 total students or something insane. <laughs> yeah, our, still, our football bigger, team did bigger. not, a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger. Um, and so then obviously you go to Montana State, and you play a lot of other positions as well, right? You play some quarterbacks, running back, you do all these different things. What was that recruiting process like? And when you were making a decision you know, for Montana State over Montana, was there a reason that drew you there? Was it the positions they'd play you at, the opportunity that you'd get? I mean, speak to your early career at Montana State and just all the different things they had you do. You bet. So I got recruited to play linebacker at Montana State, and that's, you know, I've always wanted to play defense. And then I mean, a couple days before fall camp, I got called in by the head coach, and he's like, hey, will you play running back? They had a kid getting some trouble over the summer, and it was only going to be for four games. And if I could play as a freshman, that guy was – you know, why yeah. I was, let's do it. And so I played that for a few games and then I went to defensive meetings and I was playing both ways. And I mean, that's what I did in high school. So I didn't think anything of it. I thought it was awesome to be able to play as a freshman is kind of, you know, the goal. And then, yeah. And then it got even weirder. My sophomore year, I was our starting quarterback. Our quarterback was academically ineligible and I guess I was our best option. <laughs> um, we, ran, we ran the ball pretty well that year. It wasn't, necessarily the most dynamic passer but it, it was a lot of fun you know and then I played both ways a little bit again junior year more so on defense than this last year straight defense so it took took a while to get there but finally got to the defensive side that that 2018 season is insane to like look back on your third team all-american at quarterback first team all big sky lead the team in passing rushing and set a school record for rushing touchdowns and you were recruited to play linebacker that speaks to just kind of you know the tools that you have right and i want to get to that part of this too you know six foot three 243 151 10 yard split which is rare for receivers right i mean that's upper 90th percentile for off ball linebackers four four two forty yard dash really explosive in all your jumps that athleticism is obviously going to translate to the NFL, and that's something that teams covet, and it shows up all over your film at off-ball linebacker. It showed up on your film at running back and quarterback as well. I guess, when did you, when, when did, did, did your pre-draft interviews change at all after that combine? Because I'm sure a lot more people, you know, kind of perked their ears up. Yeah, I guess a lot of, a lot of coaches and teams were like, man, did, did you expect that? And I was like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I guess I've always been fast. I didn't know, you know, number-wise, but... I've always been really athletic. I've always been really fast. And um, I guess it's it's good that other people see that now. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I want to talk more about how this pre-draft process has gone for you. Obviously, there's a significant training compo you know, component of this where you're you know, working technique for the three cone, working technique for the short shuttles and all these things, but also a lot of team conversations. You had an opportunity to go to the Senior Bowl and, and show your talents there. That's another opportunity to really get your face in front of teams. How have those conversations gone specifically with teams? What strengths and weaknesses have they highlighted? And just what's been your overall takeaway from just this wild pre-draft experience, right? It's a bit of a roller coaster talking to a lot of prospects. Yeah, it's been great. I mean, like you said, the Senior Bowl was a good opportunity for me to go down and show that I can compete against, you know, the bigger schools. I know, I mean, FCS football, we, we play pretty good football here, and but to be able to go and kind of prove that against better competition is, is always awesome. And the conversation I've been having with teams have been great as well. You know, it's when you can get in front of teams and kind of show your football knowledge and show who you are and your personality. Um, I mean, I think it goes a long ways. Like, I mean, I know that I've only played, you know, inside backer for one year. And so that's kind of what I've got from teams is that they like that, you know, it's mm -hmm. kind of a, 
a ball of clay that they can mold and shape. I don't have, you know, too many bad habits. They can kind of, you know, teach me and help me progress. Um, so that kind of plays into, you know, some of my strengths is that I'm really athletic. I'm smart. I feel like I work hard and, you know, if you can play hard and know what you're doing, I guess that that goes a long way. Have you watched, you know, obviously you said playing inside backer for only one year. What, what's, who are some of your favorite guys to watch in the NFL that play that position? Man, I like to watch, I like to watch the two Buccaneers linebackers. I like to watch Levante David um, exclusively. I mean, he's, he's a tremendous talent. I, you know how, you can tell how smart he is, um, how he studies the game. That's something that I try to do and I've always tried to do. Um, just how he recognizes things and then flies sideline to sideline. I'm both of their, both of their guys do. Yeah, I think Levante David's a name I don't hear enough of. I think he's one of those older players right in the NFL that's had a lot of success. Back in the day, dude, people would say Luke Keekley every time, Bobby Wagner, and now this kind of new age with obviously Devin White, Levante David at the top of his game right now as well. Um, you know, we can close yeah. out with this. I really appreciate the time, Troy. What, what exactly is the NFL getting in Troy Anderson, right? It's, you, from you know the conversation that we've had, it sounds like someone that's humble, that's confident in their ability, knows that they are this ball of clay, right, that have all the tools to be something great in the NFL. It's time to go seize that opportunity. What exactly is this NFL is the NFL getting man I think I think the NFL is going to get you know a small town Montana kid that's that's tough and smart knows how to work hard um I mean I think I'm I think I'm obviously athletic enough and to be able to to play and make it at that level and I'm excited to show that but you know you're going to get somebody that's tough and smart as well kind of the yeah I mean I guess that'll be it'll be good the complete package Troy thank you so much for the time and I wish you the best of luck moving forward all right. Thank you. Appreciate it. Now joining the tailgate podcast is Boston college head coach, Jeff Halfley. Jeff, I'm excited to have you on the show. Really appreciate it. No, thanks for having me, Austin. I appreciate it. Good to be here. We're talking Boston college football. And as we enter the 2022 NFL draft, there's a name that comes top of mind. It is Zion Johnson. I was there at the senior bowl and to hear how coaches and evaluators talk about this kid is absolutely absurd. He's a former golfer, but plays with the mean streak, plays with the demeanor. That's absolutely insane. He has a perfect build to play guard or even center or wherever he wants to play in the NFL. My podcast co-host thinks he could stick it out at tackle even in the NFL, but I'd love to get your perspective on him and specifically his development as a player in the time that you've been there. Yeah, I think is one, I think, I think the world is I, and I think he's, as I've mentioned to every one of my coaching friends in the NFL has called me, I think he's one of the safest picks. Um, I think he's a home run. He's a guy that's going to play in that league for as long as he wants. Um, he's like a superhero, man. He's uh, it's not like he's real. He, the way he takes care of his body, the way he approaches every day um, in all aspects of his life. I mean, he is a home run. He's a guy that, you know, when we got here, we were really impressed with. Um, we played him at offensive tackle because we thought he was our best offensive lineman. You know, and when he decided to come back for his, um, you know, for his final year, you know, we moved him back to guard. Um, we felt good about our other tackles at that point. We felt like his best position for us would be guard. Um, and I know that was important to him as well. He's a guy that could play center. He's, he snapped the ball for us in the spring. So you're getting a guy who has played tackle guard and can snap the ball, which in that league with a 53 man roster, whatever the game day roster is right now, that's invaluable. Um, you know, one of the biggest things I think he did was come back um, the way he was, he probably ready to go and maybe be a second, third round pick. Yeah. I think he could have left a year ago, um, but the way he attacked it, changed his body, got better, got stronger, worked on his fundamentals and technique. I think he turned himself into a, a first round draft pick. Um, yeah. and one of the best off offensive linemen 
in my opinion, um, that I've seen in a long time in college football. So I'm really excited for him. He's a, he's a, he's a home run. He's a special kid. I've had Zion on this podcast and, and one of my favorite questions to ask, you know, prospects going into the draft is, is just speaking more to their process, right? What do you look for in the film room? What do you look for in an opponent film study? How do you approach the weight room and all that stuff? You've kind of spoke to you know, how much he's doing those things, right? And how much, you know, he wants to prioritize that. Can you provide any details or stories on just how, how tenacious he is in the film room or the weight room and, and kind of improving his craft? Well, I mean, he's a guy that right after, right after the season, I mean, I remember after we didn't play in a bowl game and, and he's working out wherever he was down in Florida. I mean, the, the first question he texted me was, Hey, uh, my iPad stopped working. How can I access all the NFL film? Um, that's all the guy wants to do. He wants to watch film. He wants to talk to our strength coach and our nutritionist. I mean, he's a guy that he cares about every single thing that he puts into his body. He's a guy that cares about how much, much sleep he gets for recovery. He's a guy that if you walk into our locker room at six o'clock on a Saturday night, um, he's probably in there doing something. Um, he just leave, lives and sleeps and eats and it's all football for him and taking care of his body. And he just wants to be great. And, and I say this, he wants to be great in everything that he does. Um, school's the same way. He's never a guy that we've had to worry about. He's a guy that you know, probably never got blown A. And mm -hmm. when you sit in those draft meetings like I have and you talk to the scouts and you find out about these players before you really even turn on the film, he's the guy that's going to jump out as a safe pick that will probably be a captain of a football team. Um, and that's so important in that league because you're paying those guys so much money that you got to make sure off the field they're going to do the right thing. It's just – and again, I mean, my my buddy called me as a head coach from a team a couple of days ago. And I just I said, he's like a he's like a superhero. You have to find a way to get this guy in your team. You know, another a guard making the headlines here. I know you recently had your spring game there at Boston College. Christian Mahogany getting in the end zone. Uh, how excited about are you about him this season? And, and just speak to replacing Zion in that offensive line and your expectations for that group as a whole. Yeah, it would be really hard to replace Zion. I think I think Christian will be a first-round pick next year. I see him in very similar light to I see Zion. I think he's big, strong, has extremely good movement. He's a twitched-up guy that could probably play three technique and probably go on in the NFL, which is very rare to do that. I think he'll be the best guard in college football, and I think we'll be in really good shape there. Obviously, the other guard position, Finn Durstein's kind of taking that one over. He's a big, strong guy. We lose Alec Lindstrom, who, in my opinion, won again. I, th I think the world, Alec. Uh, we got a freshman coming in, Drew Kendall, who's kind of taking that one over. I think we'll be really strong in the interior. Uh, but then you get two other guys who could go to the league, Ben Petrula and Tyler Vrabel. So we kind of lose our two tackles. So everybody will be picking on our offensive line. Um, I think we got two really good, solid athletes and some depth out there to play. So we'll be a little inexperienced, but really strong up the middle. So I'm excited about those guys. But Look out for Mahogany running the ball after that touchdown <laughs> run and that celebration he did. He should be a fan favorite all around the country here pretty soon if he does that in a game. I'm heard, some are saying around the country, Christian Mahogany for Heisman. That's what I've heard. I'm, it's, it's rumors now, but we'll see if it, if it ends up in that direction. I'm excited he's, for him. He's definitely the one spreading those rumors because he's also <laughs> the one who came up with the play and came in my office. And it's a spring game, so why not? And then he did not tell me about the uh, – the little celebration he was going to do beforehand. I, I think he was kind of waiting to show me that one live. So we'll see. We'll <laughs> Love see that energy. Love that energy in the spring. Another player, you know, I want to get your perspective on is obviously you know, Phil Jerkovich. And I think he has a, a really, you know, big, you know, big opportunity this upcoming season in office corner, John McNulty's offense. Uh, speak to his preparation in the spring. And, and again, your expectations for him. 
Yeah, I, big expectations for Phil. Um, you know, last year coming into the season, he gets hurt after the first game. And he's a guy that, you know, people tout as one of the best returning quarterbacks in the entire country. He's six foot five, he's 220. He can throw the ball from hash to field. He can run. He's a lot faster than people think he is. And then he breaks his throwing hand. He breaks his wrist on the second second game of the year. And then to his credit, uh, we're getting ready to play Virginia Tech. He he's told we're told he's not coming back for the whole year. He comes into my office. Said the doctor cleared me if I wanted to play. I'm 50% grip strength. I'm playing. Um, you want to talk about a guy that people are going to be excited about in a world where we're in right now, where people are opting out of bowl games and opting out, opting out of the end of the season. Phil opted in at 50% grip strength. Uh, when we were told his season was over, came back and led us to a win against Virginia Tech. Then he single-handedly, I think, had 450 yards against Georgia Tech. We won that one. Um, it's just it's unbelievable what, he, what he's willed himself to do. He gets the flu the last game of the season, doesn't wow. practice, gets the I, gets an IV the day before the game. You're talking last game of the season. Game means nothing. People are opting out all over the country. This kid can barely grip a ball, got an IV and played in a game. Um, to me, that says all, all enough about the kid for everybody to understand what he's made of. So he's healthy this spring. He's been in command of the offense. Uh, I've seen more leadership come out of him and he's primed to have a, a really good season for us. If he can stay healthy, you know, we should be pretty dynamic on offense. Couldn't agree more. I'm excited for Phil this upcoming season. One more question for you, coach. And I'll let you go. I want to touch on one more position group. One, I know that you're excited about the defensive backs, right? You have Elijah Jones, Josh DeBerry, some young talent in there as well. I, I know you're expecting big things from big things from them as well. Dawson, I appreciate you talking about defense, man, especially the DBs. <laughs> All these guys that get me on the show, they just want to talk about Zay Flowers, who we should talk about Zay and Phil and our O-line, and I appreciate the defensive question. You've done your homework, and <laughs> I respect that. I'm a fan. Um, you know, we finished last year third in the country in pass defense in the entire country. And when we got here, we were 127th, and we knew we needed to fix that. So some was scheme, some was playing, some was coaching. But for us to finish third in the country last year in pass defense – um, I think it says a lot about our coaching staff and even more about our players. Elijah Jones, who's got great size and length, if he can put on some weight, I think he's going to be a guy we're going to be talking about next year big time. Josh DeBerry, who's our nickel, who I think is one of our best players overall on our team, toughness, instincts, versatility. Uh, he's a guy that I think if he continues to develop, he's going to have a good shot to be a really good player in the NFL too. Then we got a bunch of young guys who highly recruited. Uh, we, we flipped a kid from Florida. We beat Tennessee on a kid, which around here people kind of shrugged. Um, but we can coach DBs. We can develop DBs. Uh, fortunately, I've been around guys like Sherm and Revis and Tlaib and Rondé Barber. Um, so our, our staff knows what we're doing at that position, and that's going to be key for us. Those guys in the spring game had a great day. Um, if they can stay healthy, we got some guys that can run and cover, and I'm really excited about that. Coach, I'm glad we could talk a little defense and the offense as well. This has been fantastic. I really appreciate the time, and I wish you the best of luck this upcoming season. Thanks for having me on, Austin. I appreciate it, man. That's going to do it for the podcast. Austin Gill here with Mike Renner on Tailgate. Make sure you rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time, the mailbag episode this week, then next week, then draft week. Let's get it.